Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. Well, if you're a longtime listener, of course you'll realize usually we're talking about articles that are changing practice, but not this week. We have a very special guest, Dr. Hannah Sachs. Hannah, welcome to the show. So great to be here. I'm a longtime fan. Thanks for having me. Uh, yes, and it's taken me a long time to convince you to come on this show, and here you are, which is terrific. So, um, Hannah, for the next, I don't know, 10, 15, maybe 20 minutes, we're going to talk about uh, a brand new journal, uh, NEJM Evidence, of which you are the executive editor, as I know, and you're also editor-at-large at NEJM Original. So, first and foremost, welcome and Tell us more about NEJ Evidence. What's it all going to be about? Thanks so much, Mike. It's it's great to be here, and, and thanks for having me. We launched, we're really excited, the NEJM Group, so the publisher of the New England Journal of Medicine, which for for certainly for all of my medical training has been my uh, a go-to trusted trusted source. Um, the NEJM Group last, uh, last month in January just launched uh, NEJM Evidence, which is a new journal that we're really excited about. It's an online-only general medical journal that really we want to be at the cutting edge of, of medical research. And I've been working at the New England Journal for, for a number of years. And as part of our team there, we saw a lot of really excellent research that was submitted that didn't end up getting published in, in the NEJM. And that could be for, for a few different reasons. Um, on the one hand, there was some early phase stuff that was really interesting, but maybe wasn't ready for prime time. And at, the, at NEJM Evidence, we want to publish that stuff. We want to publish some earlier phase work than maybe usual in the NEJM. We want to publish stuff that gives new insights into new biology or, or, or stuff that may be a, a, a real hint to important work and set the foundation for important and big phase three trials that are going to come next. And I think that would be, that'll be really, really exciting. On, on the, maybe the opposite end of the spectrum is that sometimes work might not make it into the NEJM because of novelty. You know, for example, it's the, the fourth time where we're showing a, a, a immunotherapy treatment for, a, for a, a different cancer. And the New England Journal has already published kind of the first, second, even the third of those, but maybe isn't going to publish the fourth or the fifth. But as we all know, sometimes it's the fourth or fifth study that's, that's a really important study. Sometimes it's that evidence base as it builds that really changes clinical practice. And so we've sort of, as we're publishing along the spectrum of clinical investigation, we really think that uh, some of those things, both the earlier phase work and the confirmatory trials is going to be a really unique and, and exciting and interesting area. Yeah, I agree. It certainly is exciting. And I guess what you're trying to say to me is, Mike, yes, NEJM has rejected so many of your articles, but don't take it personally. It's NEJM's fault. Am I sort of like summarizing that correctly? Mike, anything that, that was not taken of your work is, I'm sure, just in, in error somewhere. But um, no, of, of course, don't take it personally. That's the, the, the process and the work and um, you know, keep doing good work. And as part of it, as I've learned from your podcast, from, from working with you in different, in, in different ways, you know, you have a focus, you bring on this podcast, a real focus to the methods and to really getting not just the, the one liner of a trial, not just the abstract, but sort of the meat of it. What's really happening? What patients were included? And really at NEJM Evidence, we want to make methods fun. We want to make methods engaging. And that may sound like a tall order, but I'm optimistic, Mike. Because I think so often people uh, reach the method section of a paper and their eyes kind of glaze over. 
when, as you mentioned, I'm the executive editor of this of this new journal. Jeffrey Drazen is the is the editor in chief, and he was the editor in chief of the New England Journal of Medicine for for almost 20 years. And when he took over as the editor in chief of the NEJM, the methods section was actually printed in a smaller font than the rest of the than the rest of the article. So if that says something about how clinicians were kind of expected to take in the work, and I, I really think that it's so critical that that we figure out how to make methods more engaging. It's the critical part to knowing how a study that you're reading, how it does or doesn't impact the care for the patient right in front of you. So we want to set up a journal for investigators, for clinicians that are taking care of patients, and really pull back the curtain on medical research. How do we make it so that people really, really understand what choices trialists made? And we want to do that in fun and interesting ways. So we have a bunch of new sections. In addition to a lot of the original investigation that we published, we have a bunch of new sections that, uh, that um, I would love to chat about. Yeah, and like, I mean, you know me, I'm a big epi nerd, so I love the idea that we're trying to make methods uh, cool and a bit more engaging. Okay, so quick question. If NEJM made the methods font size even smaller than the rest of the text, will NEJM evidence make it the largest font size in their manuscripts? It's the fun part about an online-only journal, Mike. You can blow up the method section as big as you want it to be. So you can make that whatever size you want it to be um, and shrink down the rest of it. So we're not limited by the page anymore. That's kind of an old concept. It's 2022. Perfect. Good, good. Then uh, I'll hold you to this for sure. And I think like a section I really like is this um, stats stat. And um, you had a super cool video explaining you know, non-inferiority uh, analyses, which is something that's really hard for anyone, especially me, to get my head around. Um, but you had this like, um, you know, catchy video and also comparing it to your post call, like what taco do you want to eat? Do you want the best possible taco? Uh, or would you be okay with something that's good enough? So tell me more about the stats stat um, part of the journal. This is a section that we're really, really excited about. Not just the name, which, which, which is fun, but really the opportunity to three minute animated videos to make statistical topics understandable. And that's a tall order. And it's really, really fun to try and to write scripts and think about animations and really figure out how to, how to make these topics engaging. So often you and I have had conversations around people, whether it's on Twitter or other places in social media, mistaking a non-inferiority trial for a superiority trial, or somebody makes fun of when you say it's not not inferior or it's not non-inferior. And you say, you mean it's better? And you're like, no, it's not non-inferior. And those double negatives, it, it sounds like a joke almost, but they're important and it matters. And how do we explain that and, and, and teach that um, in a way that, that is engaging and, and helpful and, and will stick? How do we make it so that trainees can understand that and learn that? And you know, our hope is that these will be tools that can be used at Journal Club when you're trying to understand an article. And just like you said, all of us, it's the 27th time you're, you're reading a non-inferiority trial and you're like, wait, what is the non-inferiority margin? So it's something we all go through and we all recognize. So it's a really fun section that we're really working on how to make some of those topics that we've heard about a bunch of times and think we should understand um, a little bit more accessible and just to have them up there on our site as a, as a library, as a refresher, whenever you need them. Yeah, I quite like that. And, you know, you need to make it accessible and you need to make it bite-sized no one is going to read a 3000 word article. I mean, maybe somebody will, but that's not how you kind of reach the masses. So that's definitely a, a section that uh, I'm also um, really excited about. So then what else about the journal um, are you excited about? So many of our, of our new sections. So we have a section called the clinical trial case study, where we're asking investigators who were involved in a clinical trial 
to tell us a story. Tell us something behind the scenes that happened. So in our, in our first issue, you can go on the website now um, and, and read two investigators from the TopCat trial testing spironolactone as a treatment for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And a trial with just data irregularities and issues gone awry and how they dealt with it. And, you know, so often I think articles get published and they all look like they're in this perfect professional font and they all seem the same. And it sort of obscures the fact that there's a ton of stories and decisions and humans behind the scenes trying to trying to generate reliable evidence and trying to generate good research. And the stories there are amazing. Any clinical trialist you talk to, every trial has a story or multiple stories. And we want to tell those. We want to pull back the curtain and, and share with people what it's like to do this research. What are the trade-offs that investigators had to make and how does that affect the, the results that you're reading and, and its generalizability and, and how does that affect how you can take that research and, and apply it to the patient in front of you? And that's just, you know, our hope is that it's, an, whether you're a cardiologist for that one or, or a general internist or any other specialty, it's a great story. You go and you read it and you learn something about the trial, about how uh, a clinical trial works and you come away with with an understanding of that and and hopefully enjoyed reading it along the way. Yeah, I, I can buy that for sure. And I think it's really easy um, for us, especially on Twitter, you know, to make criticisms. Oh, why did they do this? Or, oh, why did they do that? But then when you're part of a trial, you realize that there are a lot of people involved and there's actually a lot of thought that goes into um, uh, those decisions. So so I quite like I like that. But I cut you off, Hannah. What, what's another section that you are uh, excited about? One that we're having a lot of fun with is, is called Tomorrow's Trial. These are, are pieces that we're asking frontline clinicians, anybody who's listening who has an idea, we want to hear from you. Frontline clinicians who are caring for patients know that there's a ton of decisions that we make all the time that are not based on great randomized trial data, but are based on, you know, expert opinion or what our teachers taught us that their teachers taught them. And some of those are just ripe for a challenge in the form of a randomized trial. So we want to hear from you. We want to hear short pieces, again, a thousand words or less about a practice that's that you're doing now at the bedside that's not based on great data and would benefit and from being informed by a randomized trial and tell us about it. You know, let's learn from from each other, from this section, what are the barriers to, to conducting some of these trials? Which ones are doable? Which ones maybe aren't? How do we make, how do we design these trials? And let's, let's see if we can remove some of the barriers to conducting some of these trials that would really affect and improve the care that we can provide for our patients. And one of the things that to, to keep in mind about our journal is that, is that all the physician editors of this journal are caring for patients. That it's it is a really important thing. We don't want to be you know tucked away in some some ivory tower. That's not what it's about. You know we want to stay true to to the core of our mission, which is to help clinicians take care better care of their patients, and uh, that is really what we're what we're trying to do at our core. Yeah, I, I like that a lot, and I guess we've talked about trials a lot. I think uh, I've lost track of the number of times you or I have said trials, but it's getting up to the tens or teens. So. Does NEJM also publish non-trials or is the main focus, is it trials or bust? NEJM evidence, I would say trials are, are a substantial focus of what we do, but we're interested in the best evidence that's out there on any topic. And there's, I think, a lot of areas where, uh, where, um, where big observational studies can, can teach us a lot for sure. Um, we're publishing systematic reviews and meta-analyses is an area that we are interested in. Um, and would love to to be a place that people think about when when they're doing that type of research. So 
you know, if, if we want the best evidence that we can find on a particular topic, and, and I think in, in 2022, that can look like a lot of different things. Yeah. And I think, for, you know, for you and I, as generalists, hospitalists, like you've already alluded to, so many of the things we do are done in the absence of a randomized trial to inform it. And as I'm sure the journal is going to get into, there's so many barriers to conducting trials. It's easier for just us to sort of act randomly rather than to randomize patients or randomize physician behaviors. So I suspect for a lot of things, observational data might be as good as it gets until you have enough memento um, to, to, you know, to run a trial and fund a trial. But, but I'm not sure if you would agree with that. I mean, I think anybody who's been in this space surely knows the barriers that, that there are. And some are, are uh, unavoidable, meaning that some, some diseases are incredibly rare or some outcomes take 25 or 30 years to, to find and, and or to, to time needs to be accrued in order for those outcomes to occur. And the barriers to, to trials in those spaces is, is going to be really high. But often, I think they're more doable than, than maybe we give, give it credit for. I think we learned a lot in the COVID-19 pandemic when I think a lot of hospitals, mine for sure, rolled out a ton of inpatient clinical trials and I think broke down a lot of the barriers that we maybe thought were impenetrable, that inpatient medicine is too busy, we can't do it, and everybody's so busy, and we can't do a bunch of different trials all at the same time on different floors, and somehow we navigated all of that. And it was intentional effort, it was resources, all of those things are absolutely critical. So I think we want to be part of that conversation of how do we understand which trials to conduct, what are the priorities, not necessarily uh, only for, for companies out there, but what are the priorities for clinicians taking care of patients? What are the issues that really would benefit from better data? And how do we raise that, raise awareness about those? How do we shine a spotlight on those and really break down some of the barriers that are keeping us from doing that work? Gotcha. Yeah, that, that certainly excites me. Um, so, you know, a lot of um, our interview thus far is sort of focused on, um, I guess, the sort of end user, if you will, the people who will be reading these articles. How about the folks who are going to be submitting these articles? You and I could do a whole other podcast on the pains of submitting to journals, but you know, how do you have the kind of researcher uh, and authors in mind? That is such a critical question. Without people submitting submitting good work, there is no journal, and I just want to recognize that up front. And I think there are so many barriers that are that have sometimes uh, come up that we want to be really, really um, intentional about. One of the things I know as, as an investigator often submitting my own work, one of the things I've watched you try to pull out your hair over sometimes are sort of all of those submission requirements up, up front. Let me just say here, I don't really care about that. If submit, submit your work as it is in the form that it's in. And yes, if we get to the revision stage, then we'll have to get the formatting in line. But I don't know about you, Mike. I never mind doing it at that stage. You mind sort of reformatting everything up front when you have no idea if it's going to be sent out for a view or, or even looked at. So just one of those many things that that come come as you are and, and we'd be happy to we'd be happy to evaluate it and take a look at it. Awesome. Yeah, I think I'm going gray or losing hair from these really absurd requirements like, oh, your reference section is lacking a semicolon and instead has an actual colon. Please yeah, fix this. The colon instead of the semicolon crime it's, there. Yeah, it's like, come on, you're killing me here. But anyway, I will stop venting for the time being. Maybe just some basic questions. 
we're seeing a lot of journals that are charging money. Uh, uh, you know, when your article gets accepted, uh, is that um, what NEJM evidence is going to do? Great question. No, we do not charge authors for, for their work. So we don't. Free to submit, uh, free to publish. That's, yeah, that's terrific. Um, and then how about just some other sort of uh, things that that you want to, our listeners to know about NEJ evidence. Um, uh, what other pearls do you want to give them? So many pearls. As 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 investigators, I want to say, come join us. Submit your work. We'll, we'll we're committed to making this an expedited editorial process. So if you submit your work and it's not for us for some reason, we're going to let you know quickly and not waste your time. And if it is, we want to make it or kind of a, a, a personal experience. If you'll be working with an editor with a goal of making your work the best it can be and disseminate it as widely as possible. For, for readers, I want to say, come give us a chance. Come check out some of, come, some of these new article types. Check out our morning report section that really brings the case conferences that we all enjoyed or still do enjoy in, in residency programs across the country and the world. See, see how we're doing trying to bring that to a page. Um, and see what you learn trying trying out your clinical reasoning skills on some of these new cases. Come check out our, some of our review articles, which we're making really uh, clinically focused and, and oriented. Um, and and come check out one of our one of our first. We have a curbside consult qu- section that's really designed around specific clinical questions that come up all the time on rounds. And you know the one that um, a couple great authors, Josh Barocas and Aisha Appa, just wrote about is. Can I safely discharge my patient with a substance use disorder home with a PICC line? And I don't know about you, but that's come up uh, many, many, many times in, in, in my clinical care. And two great authors really delved into the data and, and, and gave us their, their perspective and their opinion. So I think no matter who you are, no matter where you are in the, the biomedical research and, and clinical uh, spectrum, I think there's something here for you that we would love to, that we would love to share. And one of the things I think you can't uh, end this on me without me uh, sharing with our readers that, that you've joined the team, which I, I couldn't be more excited about. So, Mike, you're in, in, on our editorial board, and uh, thanks for doing that and bringing your expertise in, uh, in general medicine, in clinical research, in podcasting to, uh, to NEJM Evidence. Welcome to the fam. I'm uh, uh, happy, delighted, and, um, you know, I guess a couple rules, though, I think if I'm part of the editorial family, you can't make any more jokes about the Canadian dollar and how cheap it is compared to the US dollar. And I think at some point in time, you'll need to cross the border and come visit Toronto. Can I have you on record agreeing to at least one of those two things? The second one I'll agree to. The second one, I will come visit Canada in the next year. Uh, Can't wait. Really can't wait. The first one, I think probably not a chance. Those jokes will continue. <laughs> Mike, I'm very funny. Those jokes are going to continue. Okay, fair. February 7th, 2022. So the clock has started. And then, you know, uh, Hannah, obviously you do a lot of other stuff. You're a co-director uh, of um, the MGH Center for Gun Violence Prevention. You're a clinician investigator uh, within MEJ, MEGEN. You're a clinician investigator. Um, at Mass General Hospital, you're a general internist, you're a health policy researcher. I want to end on how come you decided to essentially create a new journal? Don't you want to sleep? Don't you want to rest? This is just the most fun that I, I just have so much fun every day when I go to work. And no two days are the same. I get the chance to do some of my own research when I'm wearing one hat. I get the chance to, to, uh, 
help people make their research the best it can be and really think about how to communicate in new ways. So I just have the best sets of jobs in the world. So I wouldn't I wouldn't change a thing. Okay, fair. What, what about just changing who you cheer for? Like you're a big Boston fan. How about like you sort of, um, like if we got you a Maple Leafs jersey or a Toronto Blue Jays jersey, what, what about changing teams uh, um, from a sports standpoint? Uh, my, my hockey allegiances are New York Rangers, actually. I, I, I will share. Um, but I think most of us are Cincinnati Bengals fans this weekend, I think. Okay, fair. I, 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 don't know how you're, I don't know how you're feeling about it, but I think most of the country is a Cincinnati Bengals fan, which is not a sentence yes, anybody yes. expected to say. We, we are recording this before the Super Bowl, so we'll see how well this all, uh, how it all goes down. But anyway, Hannah, um, it's been, uh, it's been a great fun chatting with you and, uh, you know, I'm just so excited for our listeners to hear the episode uh, and also to start reading the content and engaging with um, what NEJM Evidence is uh, putting out there. So thanks so much for everything you do and uh, for joining me on this interview. Thanks for having me, Mike. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Special thanks to our audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores. Also thanks to founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, the editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all of the support.